This morning I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Nehemiah chapter 12. As the Spirit of God gives utterance, I want to preach in your hearing today a sermon entitled, Poised to Praise. Poised to Praise. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. I want to read in your hearing numerous verses from Nehemiah chapter 12. Allow me to begin at verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophilites, from Bet Gilgal, from the area of Jeba and Asmabeth. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate, verse 38. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Jashana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hanael, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs gave thanks, then took their places in the house of God. So did I, together with half of the officials. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithe. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portion required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God in the service of purification, as did also the singers and gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For you see, long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there have been directors for the singers and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel contributed the daily portion for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Following this massive movement of God, 
where Nehemiah was instrumental in leading the people of God to rebuild the city, refortify the gates, and then to rebuild their spiritual lives, Nehemiah the prophet now turns to the awesome task of repopulating the city. You remember that in the year 586 B.C., the barbaric Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. They deported many of the best and brightest young people that Judah had to offer. In their wake was a stream of destruction. Those barbaric Babylonians, they destroyed the city. They torched the temple. They tore down the wall. They burned the gates. Most of the houses that were left standing were only in shambles and in ruin. For years, the people of Judah were in Babylonian captivity. Then, in the year 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree empowering the Jews to return home to the sacred city of Jerusalem. And even though they had the decree, not many Jews went. The return to Jerusalem was slow, even up until the days of Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived approximately 444 B.C. And when Nehemiah heard that there were not very many people living in the city, that the work had largely been ignored, he was moved in his spirit. God anointed him, appointed him to travel, and under the direction of Nehemiah, the wall was rebuilt. Under the direction of Ezra, the temple of God was rebuilt. And now that the temple was rebuilt, a house of worship, now that the city was refortified so that people could live in the city in a safe manner, now Nehemiah realizes we've got to repopulate the city. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, we are told that the city was large and vast and a few people lived in it. Most people lived outside the city. Outside the city because up until these days, it was a dangerous place to live. Up until these days, the wall was still in shambles. Up until these days, nobody was there to offer safety and protection. But now the wall had been refortified. So Nehemiah had to come up with a plan. So in chapter 11, he devises a plan. You and I would call it a draft. He simply said one out of every 10 families will move back into the city of Jerusalem. And the people responded in obedience. They were willing to do it. So one out of every 10 families, they move back in. When you come to Nehemiah chapter 11, there is a long list of names. Those are the names of the families that came back to live inside the city. You know, we have come across a bunch of lists in Nehemiah, right? I mean, we find them on nearly every page. It's a 13-chapter book, and yet in nearly every chapter, there is some list of some group of people. Nehemiah chapter 3, he lists out all the workers along the wall. Nehemiah chapter 7, uh, he begins to list out all the people that were returning with Zerubbabel. Nehemiah chapter 8, he even lists out the other preachers that were with Ezra on the first day of the seventh month when the Bible conference began. Nehemiah chapter 10, he identifies the 84 people who had renewed their covenant with God. In Nehemiah chapter 11, it's probably the longest list that he has, and he lists out all the families that are coming back into the city to rebuild their homes and to reestablish their roots. Now, I know that when you're reading the Bible and when you come to a list of long names, the great temptation is just to skip over it. I know that 
Because I do that as a pastor. And if the pastor does it, I bet the people do it as well. I mean, you come against these names, and they are numerous. They are long. They are hard to pronounce. You're never quite certain if you're saying it right or saying it incorrectly. And so you're just kind of going through, and you just kind of skim through. Sometimes you may even think to yourself, this might be a waste of Scripture space. Why in the world does he put so many of these blasted lists all through this book? And let me remind you that these lists represent people. And Nehemiah, he knew that meaningful ministry is doing God's work in God's way with God's people for God's glory. Let me repeat that. That meaningful ministry is doing God's work in God's way with God's people for God's glory. That everything about ministry, if it's effective, everything about ministry, if it's meaningful, is rooted in relationships. First, our relationship to God through our Savior Jesus Christ, and secondly, our relationships with one another. We cannot do anything meaningful, we can't do anything effectively outside of a relationship with Jesus and relationships one with the other. We look around and we see people that we love and we cherish. We've been on mission trips. We've gone on various uh, outings together. I mean, we've done life together. We've shared faith together. And we look around this sanctuary and we see people literally that we would die for. We see people that we would take a bullet for. We see individuals that we love them because they are brothers and sisters in the Lord. And when you read one of these lists... It contains names of people that love God and love God's people. I got to thinking about that, and I realized that, that really when I read a list like Nehemiah chapter 11, I got to be honest with you, it does not bring me to tears. It does not bring me to the point of celebration. It doesn't bring me to the point where I say, wow, that's a person that I know and I love and I trust and I value, and that person loves God and he loves me and he loves God's people. Wow, this is wonderful. So as I was reading those lists, I got to thinking, what if, what if Nehemiah was writing our memoirs? I told you before that these are the memoirs of Nehemiah. This is like uh, God's diary. And, and Nehemiah is just writing down, he's journaling everything that he's experiencing and the people that he is doing ministry alongside. And I got to thinking, what if, what if Nehemiah wrote our memoirs? It may sound a little something like this. In the midst of COVID-19, there were many who showed up among the congregation to minister in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Among them were Willard Payne, Wayne King, Nikki Gant, Jennifer Myers, Chris Sellers, Jeff Blackwell, Dee Dee Strickland, Beth Davis, Jerry Thompson, David McKinley, Chris Boutwell, Kathy McCurry, Brad Benton, Brian Cleveland, Jackie Spann, Brandon Messer, Barry Blunt, Betty Elliott, Truman Fancher, John Jones, Jill Davis, Jeff Moore, plus many other faithful saints. Now I read that list and you think to yourself, now wait a minute, I know some of those people. And they do love God. And they do love this church. And they do love me. And they do love my family. And yes, they do serve faithfully. You read that list and you think to yourself, okay, now, you know what? I go to war with those people. I could celebrate with those people. I could worship right alongside those people. And friends, that's exactly the same feeling, tenor, and tone that the people of Nehemiah had when they came across all these lists. 
but they recognized people that loved God and they loved God's work. They loved God's ministry in the sacred city and they loved the people they were doing ministry with. Oh, friends, we cannot do meaningful ministry apart from Christ and apart from one another because meaningful ministry is doing God's work and God's way with God's people for God's glory. You get to our passage of Nehemiah chapter 12, the work has been done. The wall has been rebuilt, only took 52 days. The temple has been rebuilt. Many of the uh, families have been reassigned to the sacred city. They have rebuilt their homes. Now it's time to dedicate the wall unto the Lord. Now it's time to have a great celebration. Nehemiah is a tremendous leader. He says, uh, we're going to worship like this world has never seen. We're going to celebrate God that the people in these neck of the woods, they ain't never seen it like this before. I mean, we are going to really worship the Lord with great joy and praise. So he called for all the people to meet him at the valley gate. Now that's strategic. The valley gate is where it all began. Do you remember that when Nehemiah first arrived into Jerusalem, he took a feasibility study under the cover of night. He went out the valley gate. He looked around the circumference of the wall. He concluded, it's worse than I even thought. But yet God has put this on my heart. He's placed this work to do. And so they worked as one man. It all began in the valley gate. It, the, the dream began in the valley gate. All of the idea that what could God do and how could God use us and, and how meaningful could this ministry be. It all began in the valley gate. So he says, let's go back to where it started. Let's go back to the valley gate. And from the best I can tell, Nehemiah says, I want you to bring the entire choir. Bring all the instruments. Get ready to sing. Get ready to dance. Get ready to get happy. Get ready to get your praise on. Get ready because we are going to worship God. The best I can tell, he split the choir into two groups. They went on top of the wall. Yes, it's the same wall that Tobiah said what they are building. If even a fox climbed up on it, it would topple over. This was a sturdy wall. It was a well-built wall. It was a wall that could hold half the choir and all the instrumentalists. Everybody who came with their trumpets and their harps and their cymbals, everybody brought their instruments. And the people of God, I believe, went up on the wall as well. Half of them went to the south, being led by Ezra. The other half went around towards the north, being led by Nehemiah. And as they went, they praised the Lord. As they walked, they worshiped. As they were making their way around the circumference of the city, walking on top of the wall that they had just built in a matter of 52 days, as they were walking, they were praising the Lord. Now, I know that sometimes, some places, the scripture says that God's people need to be still and be quiet. But that's not Nehemiah 12. In Nehemiah 12, there's no instruction about being quiet. There is no inkling about being silent. Everybody is loud. Everybody's rambunctious. Everybody is rowdy for the righteous one. In fact, we are told in our passage that their praise could be heard far away. 
Now, I don't know how far, far away is. I just know that it's far away. And I know that in that day, they did not have amplification system. They didn't have a nice sound system. They didn't have microphones that could boom their voice. They simply praised God, and it was heard far away. That causes me to wonder every, every Sunday when we gather and praise, I, I just wonder if people on 31 could hear us as we praise God. I wonder if they could hear us far away, to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. Could they hear us? Now, we know with technology they can hear us because we are through the live stream and people are literally listening all over the world and we give God glory and praise for that. But in this passage, in this moment, they praise the Lord in that spot and they're heard far away. I wonder, I wonder if there's ever anybody driving up and down Highway 31 and they think to themselves, wait a minute, what was that noise? What is that sounds like praise? Where is it coming from? I think it's coming from that church building. I wonder what's happening inside that church building. What's happening on the other side of that stained glass window? I wonder if I got in there, if I could get some of that. I wonder if there's ever anybody who drives up and down the road and they hear the praise that's lifted up in this place. Because as I read these selected verses from Nehemiah chapter 12, I come to the conclusion that there is praise every place, from every face, of every race, in every space. That every place they went, they praised the Lord. Every step they took, they were praising the Lord. They praised him at the dung gate. That's the place of garbage. That's a trash heap. Nothing smells good in the dung gate except the aroma of praise. As they went to the dung gate, they praised God. They went to the fish gate. That was the gate of commerce. That was the gate of the marketplace. The merchants and the sailors brought their wares, brought their fish, uh, brought their catch in every single day. And it was there, right beyond the fish gate, that money was transacted. This was the New York Stock Exchange, this was Wall Street, this is the marketplace where everything happened. And even there, at the fish gate, they were praising the Lord. They praised him in the fountain gate, where the streams of abundance flowed. They praised him at the horse gate. The horse gate, that's, that's the military outpost. That's a, that's a military site where the horses are kept for the cavalry. That, that's, that's a place where the, where the government resides. And friends, when it comes to the praise of God, there's no such thing as separation of church and state. When it comes to the praise of God, every place you go, every job you have, every occupation you give yourself to, that's a great ministry outpost where you can praise the Lord. They praised him every step of the way. They, they got to the sheep gate. The sheep gate was the gate that was located closest to the temple. Yes, the sheep were there. The sheep that would be slaughtered for sacrifice. The sheep that were unblemished, perfect lambs. There in the sheep gate they were held and they came off the wall at the sheep gate. And then Nehemiah says, we took our place in the temple. I find that very interesting. That their praise went from the streets to the sanctuary went from the marketplace to the sacred place. Now, we don't always think of it that way. 
We think that we come into this house and we worship the Lord and it helps us for the week to come. So our praise comes from the house of, of worship and then it goes out into the streets. It goes from the sanctuary to the streets. And I know, I understand, there, there's good theology there. We could give testimony of how we've been helped on Sunday and it helps us the following Wednesday. We can give testimony that something was spoken, something was taught, something was said on Sunday, and it really helped us on Friday at the end of the week. We can give example after example of that. But in this passage, it would seem to me that the praise began in the street and went to the sanctuary. That the sanctuary was not the final it was not the, the, the origin of praise, it was the culmination of praise. Which begs the question, what did you do to prepare for praise on this morning? What did you do as you came into this week? What did you do from this week that prepared you for the worship on Sunday morning? What did you do to prepare to come into the house of God? Now some of you woke up, some of y'all still asleep, but some of you woke up. You put deodorant on, you brushed your teeth, you took a shower. Uh, hopefully you didn't do it in that order, but anyway, uh, hopefully you, you did that, and I'm glad you did. But I'm not talking about physical preparation. I'm talking about spiritual preparation. What did you do this past week to prepare you for this moment? How did this past week get you ready to praise the Lord? Because it was seen to me from Nehemiah chapter 12 that praise ought to start in the street and go into the sanctuary. It ought to be in the marketplace and you take it into the sacred place. That your worship needs to be a culmination of your walk. That as you walk with the Lord and as he uses you and as you minister to others, you just praise the Lord all week long and you are itching to get to the house of God. You just can't wait for Sunday. You can't wait for Sunday to come so you can go in God's house, be with God's people on God's day and get your praise on and just say, God, you're so good. You've been so good to me this past week. I just can't wait to come in here and praise you. Oh, but sometimes what we do is we say, God, it's another Sunday. I guess I'll go to church. Don't know if I really want to, but I feel like I got to. I feel like I have to, so I'll go to church. And you come in church and maybe something is spoken or said or sung or done, and it gets you excited and prepared for the next week. There's nothing wrong with that, but in Nehemiah 12, it's backwards. In Nehemiah 12, the worship starts in the streets and it goes into the sanctuary. That how you live your life leading up to the first day of the week impacts the worship that you have of Christ on the first day of the week. You and I look at these individuals as they're walking around the city on top of the wall. It would seem that what they're saying is that every place I take a step, that's a place that's dedicated to the Lord. So this wall, they say, belongs to God. This person belongs to God. This couple belongs to God. This family belongs to God. This organization belongs to God. This street belongs to God. This house belongs to God. This neighborhood belongs to God. This community belongs to God. This sacred spot belongs to God. And so all that they did throughout the week by declaring and by saying that this belongs to the Lord, it prepared them to get their praise on as they entered and took their spot in the sanctuary. And friend, it might be a good idea 
that when you and I go home today, that we just walk around the house and praise the Lord. I'm not just talking about walking from the bathroom to the bedroom, from the kitchen to the living room. I'm talking about walking from the front yard to the backyard. It might be a good idea just to walk around the circumference of your house. And as you walk around your house, just praise the Lord. Just praise him at the top of your voice so that your neighbors see you. And they'll say, you are weird. That's right. We are peculiar people. May it be a witness unto our lost neighbors and our lost friends. And maybe we just need to walk up and down the street praising the Lord. Maybe we need to walk up and down the neighborhoods praising the Lord. Maybe there needs to be some people that come and walk around the circumference of this campus and just praise the Lord. Maybe we need to find certain areas of town and just walk and talk and praise the Lord. Maybe we just need to just walk around and take in every step. And every step we take is a step taken for the Lord away from the adversary. And we say, God, this is yours. This is yours. This is yours. This is yours. Now, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills he owns everything anyway but sometimes it's profitable sometimes it's beneficial for me just to acknowledge what God already knows God I know this is yours but I give it back to you God I don't claim it as mine it's yours God this is yours that's yours this is yours that's yours and maybe it'd be a good idea for us to walk the circumference of our culture and say God this belongs to you you are God we are not you are the Lord of the dung gate all of my trash. You are the God of the fish gate, all of my commerce. You are the God of the fountain gate, all of the abundant flowing streams. You are the God of the sheep gate right before I get happy and holy, before I go into the house. You are the God of every space and every place. Let this face, let this race, let me just simply say to God, God, you're worthy of my praise. I wonder, I wonder if we could be like the people of Nehemiah and we could just take every step for God and let the worship start in the street and impact the sanctuary. Let it come from the marketplace into the sacred place. You get down to verse 46. And Nehemiah makes reference to David and Asaph. Now you're Bible students. And more than one of you thought to yourself, that's odd. Why does he mention David? David's not a contemporary of Nehemiah. David and his song leader Asaph lived about a thousand years before Christ. Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they lived 450 years before Christ. There's more than 500 years that spans David from Nehemiah. Now, why does he bring up David? Why does he bring up Asaph? I read in the book of Acts that Dr. Luke says of David that he was faithful to the purposes of God in his generation. That's high praise. To say of a man that he was faithful to God's purposes, to his generation. I don't know if you'll be around when I have my funeral when we go to the grave site, if you're there, um, that would be a nice little epitaph to put on the tombstone. Here lies Davin, who was faithful to God's purposes to his generation. That's a pretty good 
Mark, isn't it? And then as I read that and think about it, let it roll over my mind, it finally hits me that the reason Nehemiah brings up David and Asaph is because faithfulness to God doesn't have a shelf life. Faithfulness to God doesn't have an expiration date. If you're faithful to your generation, it will continue beyond your generation. You'll have the capacity to touch multiple generations. If you're faithful in your generation, God will make sure and see fit that your faithfulness will be felt for generations to come. In this case, it spans some 500 years. 500 years later, they're still talking about David. 500 years after you stop breathing, will people still be talking about your spiritual life and your spiritual work? They were still talking about David, what David did some 500 years ago. Because our faithfulness to God doesn't have a shelf life. Our faithfulness to God doesn't have an expiration date. When you go to the grocery store and you get a gallon of milk, the first thing you need to see is what is the expiration date on that gallon. Because if the time has already passed, don't purchase the milk. It's already beginning to spoil. But you want to get something that has an expiration date that's long down the road. And your faithfulness to God has no expiration date. It doesn't go out of date. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't get stale. Your faithfulness, God, is able to uh, allow to live longer than you. While you're gone, your faithfulness still lives on. So here they reference David. Because David was not only faithful to his generation. But his faithfulness was felt for 500 years to come. I want to challenge you. Be faithful to God and his word. Because your obedience, your faithfulness, it will influence and impact your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. Not just your generation, but generations to come. Because God has promised that what you commit unto him, he will keep until that day. What you commit unto him does not have an expiration date. So you get down to verse 46, and the people just make reference to what David and Asaph did. And they were doing on this day something that David and Asaph had already established. And so they wanted to continue in their faithfulness. And so you just see that this is a passage of great joy. It's a passage that describes praise that spills out in every direction. South, north, east, west. They got on the wall, divided into two groups. Don't know how they did it. Maybe Nehemiah said one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. All the ones over here, all the twos over here. Or maybe he did it according to their last name. I don't know how he did it. But he divided not only the choir, but also the people in two groups. And they praised God. The word singing in our chapter is mentioned eight times. Thanksgiving is mentioned six times. Rejoicing is mentioned the perfect number seven times. This is a chapter about praise. It's a chapter about joy. It's a chapter about thanksgiving. It's a chapter that tells me there's never a bad time to praise the Lord. That as God's people, it's always a good time to praise the Lord. So we praise him in the morning and we praise him in the noontime. And we praise him in the evening. We praise him when we first wake up. We praise him when we lay our head down on the pillow at night. We praise him 
in moments of wealth. We praise him in moments of poverty. We praise him in moments of health. We praise him in moments of sickness. We praise him in moments of pleasure. We praise him in moments of pain. We praise him in moments of promotion. We praise him in moments of persecution. We praise him in moments of comfort. We praise him in moments of catastrophe. We praise him when we're on top of the world. We praise him when the world's on top of us. We praise him when we've got the world by the tail. We praise him when the world has whipped our tail. We praise him in moments of delight. We praise him in moments of depression. We praise him when we feel like it. We praise him when we don't feel like it. We praise him because he's the maker of all things seen and unseen. We praise him because he's the maker of all things visible and invisible. We praise him because he taught the sun how to shine till the ocean only comes so far. We praise him because he heaped up the mountains and scooped out the valleys. We praise him because he saved our sin-sick soul. We praise him because he gives us purpose and meaning in life. We praise him because he makes a home for us in heaven. We praise him because nothing and no one can snatch us out of the hands of Christ. We praise him because we're confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will see it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We praise him because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We praise him because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We praise him because we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We praise him because he is God. We praise him because he's good. We praise him because he's great. We hear what C.H. Spurgeon said. C.H. Spurgeon simply said the dead can't do it. The wicked won't do it. The careless don't do it. But the redeemed of the Lord shall praise to Jesus both now and forevermore. Friends, I just came to tell you that he is worthy of praise. I don't care where you find yourself. You may be in the dung gate. You may be at the sheep gate. You may be in the streets. You might be in the sanctuary. Wherever you are, he is worthy of your praise. We praise him because he sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of our mess ups. We praise him because he who knew no sin became sin for us. We praise him because Jesus literally paid it all and all to him we owe. We praise him because his dead body was placed in the grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. We praise him because Jesus is our Savior and he's alive. We praise him because he's ascended into the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. We praise him because one day the Father's going to look at his son, give him the wink and the nod, and say, go get your bride, go get the church, and Jesus will come. He'll rip open the eastern sky. He'll descend. He will enter that eastern gate. I know it's walled up, but that's not going to stop him because a stone didn't stop him the first time, and some cement's not going to stop him the second time. And he will come through that eastern gate. He'll set up shop, and he will declare he is worthy of all of our praise. So we praise him. We praise him. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. 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 Let me hear you. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Because the dead 
won't do it. The wicked won't do it. The careless don't do it. But the redeemed of the Lord shall praise to Christ both now and forevermore because he is worthy. He is worthy. I wish I had a witness in the house that somebody could testify with me that he really is worthy of all my praise, all my adoration, all my worship because he is my Savior and Lord. This morning, if you don't know why, I shout. This morning, if you don't know why, I sweat. If you don't know why, I preach like I do. It's simply because I know that he's worthy of my praise. He put air in my lungs. I like to talk about sports. I like to talk about other things. But the reason he puts air in my lungs is so I can talk about Jesus. If you don't know why I get so happy about Jesus, then today I invite you to come and trust him as your Savior and as your Lord. If you do know him, the Bible calls you redeemed. The redeemed cannot be silent. The redeemed cannot be muzzled. The redeemed cannot be snuffed out because the redeemed of the Lord will say so. He is worthy of our praise. If you're here today and you do not know him as Savior and Lord, I invite you to come. If you do know him as Savior and Lord, I invite you to come and to praise him if you just need to come and pray. If God is drawing you to this church, do so in this moment at this very hour. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will have your way in this invitation. Lord, we pray that you'll be honored and glorified. Every step we take, everything we say, everything that we do, it, it's all about you. Your praise must be on our lips. Your praise must be in our life. So, Father, have your way. Help us to praise you well. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.